Good morning and welcome to AI Daily. Today, we have three great stories revolving around some grid regulation, some LLM technology, and a lot of interesting news out of OpenAI. So let's kick off with our first story, which is Japan's stance on copyright. So the Japanese government has pretty much reaffirmed that all data, whether not for commercial use or not for commercial use, no matter how obtained, no matter what the current copyright is, you are allowed to use this data in training AI models and, of course, in inferencing and utilizing these in applications and inferencing on these models. So they've pretty much taken a stance that says we are open to all data. They're looking to reaffirm their own positioning in AI and continue to grow the Japanese AI ecosystem. So, Farb, tell us more your take on this. You know, Japan basically came out and said, if you're going to use our anime and our manga in your various trainings and AI and generative AI, we're going to use all of the corpus of all of your English knowledge that has been, uh, you know, part of the training sets of this stuff. Pretty, pretty awesome and somewhat hilarious p position to take. And, you know, I think Japan is looking at a world where AI could, you know, save that society. It's Population is declining. They're the third largest economy in the world, although it's been a relatively stagnant economy for a few decades now. And I think they see that this is their path to the future and they're not going to tread it lightly. They're going to speed down this path and they're going to do what they're going to do and you can do what you're going to do. And they're kind of fine with that. It's, it's, it's pretty progressive, but the same time, it lets you know, I think, how seriously they're taking their own society and what AI could do for it. Connor, what's your take? Do you think we'll see other countries start doing this or is this uniquely Japanese? I think we'll see other countries start doing this now that Japan is taking the lead here and that Japan is going to be producing models that are vastly superior in capability and have don't have the copyright problems of current large models. Uh, I think we'll see other countries follow their lead. Um, in hindsight, this makes sense. Japan has, as we mentioned by far, has declining birth rates. Japan, I've seen some mentions that Japan's kind of workforce is like almost unionized in a way where it's hard to really get the progress, but AI helps a lot there. But even though in hindsight, this makes sense, no one really saw this coming in a lot of ways because the discussion before was, oh, what if a rogue country, oh, what if a rogue third world country puts out a law like this. But now that Japan, a member of the G7 does this, it's surprising in a lot of ways, but in hindsight, it does make sense. So yeah, I, I wonder how this works out day to day. I don't know if either of y'all know about this, but in terms of, I mean, let's say you're a you know, Japanese citizen, you want to train a new AI, AI model on Disney. Are these tentacles of the US going to reach over there? How did I believe it's work? only content produced in Japan is how the copyright law works. So copyright by another country, Japan, does not include that because they don't I own see. that. So just, no, no self-respecting rogue first world country is going to let a rogue third world country do something that they could have otherwise done. Yeah. Interesting. Well, Godspeed to Japan. Um, our second news today is Didact. So this is the first code LLM that's actually trained on pretty much a reasoning of thoughts. So it's modeled on the way a real software developer codes. So if you Think of, you know, GPT-4 or some of these other coding models like Codex. You're putting in an input and it's going to output all the code you need. 
we've seen so much progress on like train of thought and reasoning, you know, let's think step by step. Let's have the model go from A to B to C and finish its workload like that. So this is the first code model trained on the way a developer works, editing the code, fixing bugs, reviewing errors and producing the end output. So Connor, tell us more on what the training of this looks like, why it's actually important for code. Yeah, a model like this was really only possible by Google because Google has a decades old monorepo that has the exact changes and the exact steps a developer goes through to update a repo, to update a code base. Google has very specific data by every developer that's ever worked at Google. And in comparison to what we see from Copilot, from Replit's Ghostwriter, those models are really only trained on the head of the code, on the latest code, on the final product of the code. And how those models are trained means that you can only really get the final output. But this didact out of Google means that we can now train and we now have these models that are able to fully follow how a software developer works, fully go through following errors, repairs, comments, tips, following unit tests, everything about the software development stack. And that's really a big leap from just the final output of code. Yeah, and we're about to touch on this in the next story too, the importance of doing this kind of step-by-step -step reasoning and understanding the entire process that gets you to an output. Um, Farb, of course, we've worked a lot with, you know, chain of thought reasoning and how that affects applications. What do you think of this kind of, you know, how is it so important to understand the entire process of an output and not just an output? You know, I think one of the important pieces in didact is its understanding of the history of what the developer has been doing yeah. so that it can better predict what should what should happen next the developer makes this change here they put their cursor over here in the in the documentation and it's boom here's the documentation for the change you just made so i think you know when you're talking about chain of thought chain of reasoning uh, you can't do that without history and it's, it's interesting, there's all this metacognition going on in the sort of a AI development world. And interestingly enough, to me, I feel like it follows the development of, of human cognition. You know, long ago, we developed language and we became these beings that can, you know, have a, these semi-sized semi language models in our head. And then over time, people took that ability and started creating metacognitive, you know, stacks on top of it where the reasoning was developed more. Okay, so we can speak and we can remember what we said. Okay, how do we use that to reason more deeply? Uh, and so it's, it's interesting for me to see the development of AI's cognition in some ways, you know, match the development of human cognition probably just a million times faster in terms of the timeline. No, yeah, I like how you pointed that out. And I think we're going to see more models like this uh, affecting things like medical and law too. So not just getting the outputs of a medical opinion, but actually going step by step. Hey, let's integrate the clinical research searches. Let's integrate this and, you know, understanding the process, like you said, that metacognition to get to the output. So really cool stuff, um, which goes into our next story really cleanly as well. Two different pieces from OpenAI. The first one is OpenAI's they pretty much improved mathematical reasoning through what they call process supervision. Um, so Connor, please speak more on it, but pretty much we're looking at very similar things, right? A improved chain of thought reasoning that understands the process of math and not just, hey, here's a possible output. Yeah, so far the model has been out outcome supervision where you only reward based off finding the correct answer. But this process supervision now rewards based on each step. 
of finding a mathematical answer. And this really mirrors how we do education in the real world, how we teach humans, how we teach kids to learn. It's not just, hey, you randomly got the right answer, good job. It's, oh, you followed each step correctly, you followed the entire mathematical process correctly, good job. And that is a much stronger reinforcement of learning in real people and clearly in real models as well. So, Barb, I think you covered it up well in the last segment, but anything you want to touch on with this kind of process supervision even more? Yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right. There's this uh, human mapping to how humans work, giving people feedback at every step of a, of a process instead of just at the end of the process. Not surprisingly, it performs better when you're giving feedback along the way. You know, a lot of these things are a combination of eventually getting to the point where there's some developers that can start working on this part of it because they worked on the previous part. Now they can move on to this part and make this better. The processors get better. You get more GPUs in your farm. You can do more things with it. Uh, this is like we've said, just the, the, the beginning of all this stuff. And you're right. It's very closely related to what's happening at Didact. And what's awesome to me is that we're continuing to see this rapid proliferation of the application layer of AI, what you can do with it. Uh, and we're just as equally seeing the rapid proliferation of the basic research and fundamental infrastructure that AI is building on. So, you know, I don't think we've ever seen a world where the the leader at something is, seems to be switching on an almost daily basis. A couple of people on Twitter have been complaining that they feel like GPT-4 uh, has lost some of its mojo especially with regards to writing code. I haven't, you know, done a benchmark myself, so I can't say whether this is accurate or not, but the, the number of people that are talking about it makes you, makes you wonder, maybe, maybe that is the case. So it's interesting to see Didact from Google coming up and being like, oh, here is something that could potentially be the greatest AI software developer ever, GPT-4, that seemed like it was the greatest software, you know, AI software developer ever, maybe isn't. Uh, this is pretty exciting stuff to see this rate of change and, you know, who's the best at any one thing almost changing on a daily basis. I think the chaos is good for individuals, individual developers, open source community, because there's not just some some understanding that there's a, a leader that's never going to change. It's also very interesting to note that all these methodologies like process supervision, like didact, even like chain of thought. They would have worked with the models we had three years ago with GPT-3, with et cetera, from back then. But we've only just discovered these thoughts and practices now and are only applying them to the larger models, even though they would have worked years ago. You can only connect the dots looking backwards. But yep. Absolutely. Super cool. Uh, segmenting again with OpenAI, you know, we got a lot of, lot more color from Sam and from OpenAI on how they're thinking, what some of their bottlenecks are. I'd like each of you to touch on, you know, the most interesting thing you saw from that. There was a lot in there. To me, the main point here we're looking at, you know, we've talked about NVIDIA this week, but OpenAI and Sam are talking about, hey, we are limited on GPUs and that's affecting, you know, their fine tuning API. That's affecting them rolling out multimodal. That's affecting them rolling out longer context windows. And their plans for this year, as he said, was first, they want to make GPT-4 faster and cheaper and then start accomplishing those goals. But to do that, they're limited on GPUs, just like every other startup and business out there. So I found that really interesting, but there was a lot of color in that. Anything, Barb, anything you saw um, from OpenAI's kind of Sam's plans that you want to touch on? You know, I think he's, he's right about what he's saying pretty clearly. And I think, again, we're just seeing this natural tension where 
more processors are coming online. The processes are getting better. But I think as profound or maybe more profound is people are learning how to get more out of less. Uh, and once the flywheel of AI pushing AI faster starts going and you apply it to getting more out of less, hopefully we'll see this, you know, we'll always be riding this tension line between what we can do with this amount of processing power and what we could do if we had more. So I don't see this problem really ever going away because we're always going to push up to the edge of what we can do with the amount of processing we have our hands on. Connor, anything you want to touch on with kind of OpenAI's plans and what they talked about? I saw also they mentioned plugins. They're not having product market fit with plugins. Um, but yeah, please. I was gonna I was gonna comment on that. I I've had plugins access for a bit, and I used them a few times. The Wolfram Alpha one's a little bit useful, but overall plugins are not that useful. And if you people aren't using them in ChatGPT, then I agree with Sam. I agree with OpenAI. It doesn't really make sense to offer them through the ChatGPT API. So. Um, What's your thoughts on why like people aren't seeing this? You know, at least anecdotally from using plugins, it, it's less so that the plugin end state is not useful. Um, you know, I'd love to be able to browse Zillow, et cetera, but the actual experience is pretty subpar right now. It's slow. It's pretty ineffective. Why do you think this is happening? This is like talking to, you know, if you want to get a reservation on open table, do you want to talk to yourself about the reservation and how to go about doing it or do you want to just go book the reservation so you know talking with another intelligence or entity about something that you want to have done and then have it do it is just you know one more node in the process of accomplishing things so i think in some ways depending on the task it makes sense to have someone that you're talking to about accomplishing it and for some tasks it doesn't and you know understandably they're not starting with, you know, hey, develop a new time machine for me. They're starting with make an open table reservation. But it turns out that you're better at making an open table reservation than you are at talking to somebody else about making an open table reservation. It's it's kind of an issue of layers where instead of normally going straight to open table and now you have to go to ChatGPT, then to open table. Yeah. So if if this solution was built in the OS directly by Microsoft, like we're seeing with Windows eleven or by Apple and the iPhone. It's a much different, it's a much different experience than having to go to an app and then use plugins within that app. So, absolutely. Well, we'll link it below. Um, there's a lot more info on OpenAI's plans, their regulation plans, their current bottlenecks, what their near-term future looks like, fine-tuning API, a lot of cool things. But to move on, what are y'all seeing? What what else is interesting you, Farb? You know, it's really cool. We, earlier we talked about Japan uh, and their you know, not caring about copyrights with regards to AI training sets. We have the UAE coming out and releasing Falcon, this massive, uh, the, I, my understanding is the best performing open source model that's currently out there. Uh, they've removed any restrictions that you don't have to pay for it. It used to be that you could use it, I think commercially, but after a certain sort of, uh, revenue run rate, you'd have to start paying for it. They've removed that. It is not uncensored. It's, a, it's still a censored model, but it is free and available for people to use. And, you know, I don't think anybody had UAE coming out and leapfrogging everybody else in the open source AI world on their bingo card. Good for them. Absolutely. Yeah. Connor? Yeah, so Soupbase is now really pushing their Soupbase vector. Uh, PG Vector has been out for a little bit, and a lot of people, including myself, has been starting to use PG Vector inside Soupbase. It works very well. And I think Soupbase saw that and saw that level of adoption. And now they're pushing Soupbase Vector as a pretty big thing. 
Uh, they've written some libraries around it. And this really is a much better way to use a vector database, in my opinion, than something like a VVA, something like Pinecone, or even something like Chroma, because this integrates directly in your database and the metadata lines up in the columns along with your vectors. And it's way more straightforward to use as a developer than these third-party databases. So you see the SQL databases and actual providers supporting these features. You don't have to go set up WVA to manage the linking the metadata and all that annoying stuff. So super cool. Um, I saw that Google is investing in Runway. Runway has been a favorite tool of mine for, gosh, years now. I watched them since the very beginning when they first released their kind of demo as a Mac app. Um, so really excited for them. I think they raised almost $100 million from Google. It's also just, I think it's important. We're seeing Google just like AWS and some of the other big cloud players, of course, Microsoft Azure, trying to embed themselves with some of these startups that really have a lead and making sure that, hey, they're getting that GPU dollars. So when Google's investing in Runway, I think we'll be seeing Runway deploy some workloads on Google Cloud. So cool to see overall, excited for the Runway team. But outside of that, thank you all for listening to AI Daily, and we will see you again tomorrow. Peace, guys.